Kherson, a regional capital in the southern Ukraine, has been liberated from the Russian occupation in November. Since then, however, Russians are trying to make life in the city unbearable. They shell it with artillery every day. We went to Kherson with a volunteer trip and will tell you the city's story in this episode. You are listening to the podcast Explaining Ukraine. Explaining Ukraine is a podcast by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Vladimir Yermolenko. I'm Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, chief editor of Ukraine World. My co-host is Tetyana Harkova, a Ukrainian scholar and journalist who is heading international department at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. Before we start, let me remind you that you can support us on patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We devote majority of your donations to help Ukrainian defenders and people affected by this war. Patreon.com slash ukraineworld. So, Kherson. Kherson, a now very difficult, very hard city very difficult to leave we went there with uh, uh with uh, over 10 people from pan ukraine a ukrainian uh, writers poets organization human rights organization uh, as with uh, as we went to mikolaev we went with a volunteer trip we brought uh, books to the local libraries but we also brought some important things for the for the civilians the the pieces of hygiene soap uh, and, and some other other stuff which which uh, is very much needed for everyday purposes in Kherson so Kherson was liberated in november the 11th of november and uh, we hope that you remember that euphoria euphoria that was around the world about the liberation and of course everybody was so happy in ukraine abroad that it was liberated But Russians were just, um, they were pushed back to the Dnipro, Dnipro River, to the left bank of the Dnipro River, and um, it is now one kilometer from their positions to the to this city, and they are shelling it with artillery every day. What it is, what is this like? How it, what is this, what it does, does it look like? Yes, indeed. When you travel from Mykolaiv to Kherson, the road is getting worse and worse, and you see much more destruction with each kilometer. There's a lot of checkpoints, and but not a lot of cars who are traveling to Kherson right now, and much more cars are traveling out of Kherson, unfortunately, at that very moment. Um After a couple of days of this real joy of liberation, so we visited uh, this city one month and a half after the liberation, so when situations changed, and you start to see this, uh, the first image is quite pessimistic because what you see on the streets of Kherson, you see almost empty city. We also visited Kherson after this strike of the 24th of December, the day when Russian artillery, artillery killed 
10 people and wounded at least uh, dozens, at least five, 50 people were wounded during this attack. This attack was deliberately against civilians in the city center close to the, to Silpur supermarket. So people were going there to do some shopping and they were killed just on their way there. So it's just a tragic moment. We were there just a couple of days after that. And I remember the moment when everybody in Mikulayev, I mean, in volunteer circles where, where telling stories. So, um, you, you have to have helmets, just be very careful. Artillery fire is not something like missiles. You don't receive air alerts on your phones. It can happen everywhere at literally every moment. So no signal is here and you just killed in a couple of seconds. And so be really very, very careful. And if you ask for, for no, any kind, policemen or uh, any other military, they will also ask you not to go to Kherson because the danger is real. They are trying to compare Kherson to Bakhmut. I think this is an ex exaggeration, but they say that Kherson is on the front line now. This is not a normal city. This is not a city close to the front line. This is a front line in a way. And we were able to see that with our own eyes. You just, we were in a... Um, uh, in a library, a huge building, uh, a library named after Oles Honchar, Ukrainian writer. It's close to the river Dnipro and just across the river, you see what they call dachas, dachas, country house, country, countryside houses. And in, inside somewhere in these dachas, there are Russians and Russians are shelling uh, the city with whatever they have, with all kind of artillery systems. So you, when you drive through Kherson, you know that people are there, but people are inside their houses, inside their apartments. You can sometimes you see some people going to a, to, to a shop, to a supermarket, and then going back. But this is not like a living city. This is a ghost city. Well, ghost city not in the way, not in the sense that there is nobody there. There are people uh, you really don't see. Many people on the streets, uh, especially after two or three o'clock, where when there is still light, but uh, there are barely anybody on the streets, barely any car on the street. Uh, a little bit like Kyiv in 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 yeah. March, I would say. Uh, but of course, we can assume because we left, we we drove to Kherson at around nine a.m. in the morning, and we. Uh, drove back from Kherson about 3 p.m. So we spent six hours in the city, not much. But we, 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 we've talked to, to many people, actually, uh, and we will tell you their stories now. But uh, really what people are telling us that, look, we try not to leave our apartments. We try not to leave our houses without, without any need because in the houses we are, we are protected. If you are in the house and you are shelled by... Uh, by artillery, you have chances to, to survive. This is not a rocket, right? Um, but if you if you go out and you just happen to to be targeted by an artillery strike, you have. Unfortunately, have a risk to die. And the remark about snipers. There are also snipers present on the left bank of Dnipro River, and uh, um, we were told this uh, this uh, dramatic story about people who were going to the to the river 
just to take water because during first weeks after the deoccupation they had no water inside the city. So they were going to Dnipro just to take water and snipers are shelling people just for I don't know for fun. Why do they uh, why do they kill civilians like that? People who went to the river just to take water. Yes, we don't know why. Uh, well. We don't know. We're, of course, we know why Russians are shelling the, 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 the civilians in the city because this is the way how they wage the war and everybody is talking about this. Uh, so coming back to your uh, point about the strike on 24th of December, this was a strike on Christmas. People were going to, you know, to make... This was, I think it was Saturday, right? And people were going to... The market and the, to the supermarket to get some food. Somebody was preparing a Christmas dinner. Although Ukraine is slowly shifting to these Christmas uh, celebrations with with the with the rest of the Christian world, not as with the Russian world at seventh of January. So I assume that some of of the people were going to the markets to prepare this Christmas dinner. And they were deliberately shelled. On the, there was a direct line, a straight line between the supermarket Silpo and, and the market. And uh, unfortunately, uh, what people in Kherson are telling us, that there are still a number of people in the city who are working for, for Russians, who are working as correctors for Russian artillery, who just informed them, look, there is a mass of people on the market and... Yeah, this is a target, and 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 they just shell the, this mass of people, this this crowd of people. And the problem is with Kherson is that the the Russians they do know well the city because they stayed in the city for many months. So they even maybe don't need people to correct the fire. They just know where the market is. They just know where the supermarket is and where there's a school or whatever. So this is a difference with between Mykolaiv, for example, any kind of other city. Because Kherson, let's repeat that, is the, the only big city. Really regional center which was captured by Russians uh, from the beginning of this invasion and they knew well the city because there were their bases, they were they captured plenty of things there, they were uh, trying to put everywhere their administration in schools and all that. So they knew the city so when they now they hit the city they, they are not mistaken they know deliberately and they, they, they hit deliberately the objectives they, they want. You can ask a question if there are Ukrainian artillery in the city we haven't seen anything uh, maybe it is hidden somewhere, but uh, when we were in a village called Chernobyevka, a famous uh, village which has the airport, the Kherson airport, uh, to which Russians try to land in order to, uh, you know, to, to capture it, and if they would capture it, they would bring lots of forces there, and uh, therefore they would be able to go to Mykolaiv directly, and um, this was a very strategic place. And Ukrainians were hitting uh, Chernobyevka uh, many, many times. I think about ten or something like that. So now, now, now it's a place where Ukrainian army is based. And we, when we were close to Chernobyevka, we've heard uh, the the sounds of artillery, uh, what we call vychody. That means that that the shots made. Uh, f by Ukrainian army. So I assume that maybe if Ukraine sh uh, shoots with, um, with the long-range artillery, maybe it's located in such places like uh, Chernobyl or some others. Um, when we were in Kherson, uh, at some point when we were in, in the art museum, there was a real artillery battle and uh, it was quite, quite loud. 
uh, quite close to us. And when we left the city and just checked the news, we understood that the Russians hit the maternity house. This is also the, their style, uh, shooting at maternity houses, at hospitals. And this maternity house was just about 800 meters from us, from the place we were, just 10 minute walk. So it was it was quite close. And they also hit some of the residential buildings as well. Yes, indeed. So the shelling is intense and people are very cautious about these walks around the city. So they do what they have to do, but otherwise they stay inside. Let's talk about uh, this uh, particularity of Kherson, maybe the most important difference of Kherson compared to other cities like Mykolaiv is that... Uh, the population lived under occupation for many months. And among people, there were different categories of people. There were people who left in the first days of invasion, so just after Russians arrived there. There was a group of people who stayed, who took this decision to stay under occupation for multiple purposes. We met people who were active in the resistance, we'll tell this story. There were also people who collaborated. We asked that question many times to, to inhabitants of Kherson, and we were told that according to their idea, uh, between 10 and 20% of uh, people who stayed inside the city they were collaborating. But this form of collaboration was pretty different. Uh, could, should we talk, should we call collaborators people who accepted to be, to continue to be teachers in schools, to receive Russian money and to teach according to Russian programs? Should we consider collaborators people who were, for example, working in banks and who accepted to continue to work in the same bank, but it renamed Russian bank? And delivering Russian money. Should we, uh, and the same story for many administrations. And as you, as you can see, the, um, the vast majority of Ukrainians refused or was trying to do everything to postpone playing for time to refuse this role of being Russian administration or Russian school or Russian bank. But, uh, a tiny minority between 10% and 20% uh, agreed to do so and to collaborate and to help occupants. And now what is happening in the city is that everybody knows who did what during the occupation. And some of these people are still present in the city and they are living close to others who suffered from the occupation. People who were greeting Russians are living now close to those who suffered during the occupation. And I guess that Ukrainian police and Ukrainian armies just have no time just to, 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 to see, to, to, and to handle the thing, to see what is the responsibility because they are busy with Russians. And uh, this is a difficult, there's a lot of, uh, um, a lot of uh, inner problems in the city. And let's maybe tell this particular story about the theater. We were able to see, to meet a wonderful, very interesting person, personality, Alexander Kniha. He's director of a city uh, theater in uh, Kherson. By the way, the theater of Kherson is, was built according to the same model as the Mariupol theater. That one which was bombarded by Russians back in March. So the same model, the same architecture stru structure in, in a way. And they were really very afraid after the strike against Mariupol theater because they, in Kherson, they also used undergrounds of the theater f as, a sh uh, as, as a shelter, as a bomb shelter for population. And they were really very afraid that their, their theater will be bombed. 
Uh, and his story is that out of, out of, uh, 250 people working in the theater, administration, but also actors, uh, musicians, uh, whatever, all kind of people, around 20 were collaborators. So they were staying with, uh, during this occupation time, and they were collaborating and helping Russians to organize cultural events around. Not, not, not so many people. Also and, many. Uh, not so bright actors and for example the remarkable thing is that uh, the Russians appointed a director of the theater instead of uh, Mr. Kniha and it was a security guy a, a person who was uh, responsible for security um, in the theater before the big war Uh, they failed actually to, or, or during all these months Kherson was occupied for How many? For nine months, right? Uh, From end February until 11th I'll, of November. Yes. Uh, they didn't succeed to open the Russian theater there. They didn't succeed to to start playing Russian plays or, I don't know, Russian imperialistic repertoire or patriotic repertoire. So this is also a thing. Uh, the story of this uh, Alexander Kaneha is that he, he was kidnapped He was kidnapped. He was uh, kept in a in a prison sh prison cell for for several days, and then uh, they let him go. And they they he was kind of a, he needed to leave the city. But there are there were many many other people uh, who stayed in the city, and this is something which was really remarkable when we heard that their stories is just the stories of the ordinary people resisting the. The resistance on the very low level, right on the on the each particular level. Imagine a a director of a library who does not uh, agree to come and continue working uh, for Russians. Russians, uh, or imagine these actors of the theater. Uh, they the Russians are suggesting a salary which would be six times, eight times higher or five times higher than the salary that they were receiving before and they would uh, deny this. They would not agree to to work for them. Or the workers who, 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 who say when it was suggested to return working on this particular library, they would tell you, okay, I will, I will think, I will maybe come next month and next month they are contacted and they say, okay, I will think even more. So ima imagine all these, you know, strategies of people to avoid collaborating on the, on the low level. They would, it's, it's quite a difficult thing because they were left without money, they were left without the, their jobs and they still were resisting up until last moment. And, and and the Russians they felt that resistance and Kniha, this uh, director, city director told us a, a very interesting story when on the 1st of June the, the Children's Day here in Ukraine they tried, the occupants tried to organize this Children's Day uh, around the city so they invited kids and they gave them chalk just to make some drawings on the, on the, on the, on the, on the ground. And these Ukrainian kids started to draw Ukrainian flags and writing 
Hornet to Ukrainian army. So, and there were a lot of cameras. So they were trying to film something, look, propagandistic video saying that, look, uh, Russians are protecting kids in Kherson, but the image was, was spoiled by these Ukrainian kids, which were, they were not resistance. They were just, just Ukrainian kids, which were, uh, for Ukraine and for Ukrainian resistance. And that, that was the very moment when they decided to, to, to create these uh, Russian programs, to introduce these Russian programs and, and uh, introduce these Russian schools in Kherson. And we were told a number of stories how parents were invited and even forced to send their kids to these Russian schools. They were even paid according to, to, to what people said to us, t- told us uh, stories. They were offering uh, 4,000 grievances uh, to families who send their kids to schools, to Russian schools. This is $100. 4,000 hryvnas? It's not 1,000, it's 100. Yeah, 100. $100 I, I, per month. Yeah. So not, not a huge sum, but but in a way for Kherson, it, it, it was a considerable sum. So families who were doing so, they were trying to buy whatever they could buy, buy the salaries in the theater, for example, in other places, uh, paying parents to send their kids to schools. They were also kidnapping kids. This is true. We were told this story by, by the locals. They were invited during the summer and also during the September. They were inviting families to send their kids to Crimea as, as if for holidays, what people did, in fact. Uh, and so they sent their kids to these camps. But uh, two weeks later and three weeks later, kids were not back. And in in, in the end, when the city was liberated in, the, in November, kids were, were still in Crimea and Russians were saying, look, if you want to get your kids back, so go to Crimea, uh, take our passport and you'll get and have your kid back. So it's, it's about kidnapping. So they were uh, taking kids away from the families. Yeah, they were taking kids as, as hostages. And uh, of course, under... Under explanation that look, we are saving children from the uh, from from the artillery fire or whatever else, but uh, really pushing ch- pushing parents to uh, adopt Russian citizenship or to leave their homes because they would rather go to I think to Ukraine. If imagine a parent go to Crimea and then he or she is sent in deep into Russia, we don't know where. So this is this is how they're working. Uh, what else? Let's tell uh, tell the story about the art museum, Khersonsky Hudozhny Musei, which we visited, and uh, as we told you uh, during this visit, it is quite close to Dnipro River uh, as the Oles uh, Gonchar Library. So we were told by people before we traveled to Kherson, we were told that look. Never come close to the river. That's the, the first rule. But unfortunately, our objects, which we visited, were quite close to the to, to Dnipro, and uh, it seems that uh, this artillery fight began uh, at, the, at that moment. It was quite loud, and, um, and so we talked to acting director of this museum, who also lived through the occupation, who tried to save the collection. And this is a fantastic and a very good museum. She she just showed us the uh, the album of this museum, the catalog. There are really classics of of art of Eastern Europe uh, and Ukrainian art. People like Pimonenko, people like uh, Tatiana Yablonska, people like uh, Ivazovsky, and uh, these remarkable paintings. And uh, 
from the first moment, it seems that Russians, FSB, um, the Russian version of KGB, came to her asking where is the collection, and they were they were willing indeed to to relocalize it, to transport it. She was telling them that look, the collection is already transported into Ukraine. Unfortunately, Ukraine, Ukrainian authorities did not take care uh, about the evacuation of collections. This is a big mistake of the culture ministry, I think. And but at the same time, maybe simply because they didn't have enough time, because as we remember, Kherson was taken quite quickly in the beginning, the late, late February, beginning of March. But yes, indeed, this woman we talked to, she was a deputy director. At that very time, direct, real director, she left Kherson uh, uh, quite quickly after the occupation. And this is a very interesting story because it lasted for months. During months, she was trying to pretend that they created a legend. Their legend stated that look as if they were, um, this exposition, this collection was already somewhere in Ukraine. It was not true because collection were there in the museum. It was hidden somewhere, somewhere in the museum, but the museum itself was empty. There were some some works inside museums, so was it, it looks quite credible version for, for Russians. But then, unfortunately, it, it lasted for weeks and even months, but then they discovered that she was lying because it was a kind of a collaborator, somebody from the museum who talked to them about about the presence of the of the of the collection inside, and then they restarted the game, asking, "But where where are the documents? Uh, documents, all these electronic documents for the for the collection?" And she continued to say that she know, knew nothing, and she was physically present in her son, and she could not do nothing about it. Uh, she, she knew the stories about people who were trying to escape the city and without any success. We also talked to people who, who tried to escape the city six times. So it, it takes you one or two days to try to escape. You drive for hours, then you stay at the checkpoint for hours, and there is a sharing, and then there is, and they don't let you go, then you restart. So she knew that she was really trapped in Kherson. And she, then she, they came, Russians came to her house, they were trying to find documents. And the, the real drama is that uh, one week before the liberation of Kherson, they were finally able, they, they finally found the collection, they found the documents, and they organized uh, the pro pro procedure process, which lasted for at least four days of these deportations of the collection. And it happened, they finished, if I'm not mistaken, you correct me, on the 3rd or 4th of November. So one week later, her son was liberated, and they took eighty percent of the collection. Eighty percent, over ten thousand paintings, sculptures. This shows that Russians are not only killers, uh, not only rapers, but also robbers. They're robbing the Ukrainian art. Of course, they are saying, and this is all the narrative that this is Russia, this is Russian tradition, this is Russian art, all this bullshit. Uh, but imagine a well, a a robber of a of a museum can take one painting, two paintings. These guys have taken ten thousand, ten ten thousand, and we we don't know how it is able to bring it back, right? Because, well, when we when Ukrainian army liberates Crimea, imagine they will certainly evacuate it to somewhere else, to Russia, so, to Russia. So this is this is what Russians do. They're robbers, killers, 
rapers, everything you can imagine, terrorists. And let's talk about Suspilne. Suspilne, this is a media group present in Kherson before the occupation. So it's the, a Ukrainian public television. Pub, television and radio. And they, we visited their place, and this place was occupied by Russians in early March. And we were able to talk to Natalia, who was a journalist in Suspilne, Uh, before the occupation, but then she was she spent all these months in her house, not moving a lot. She was not working for for Suspinde. and we were able to see with our own eyes how they how Russia transformed the the place. They were military living on the on the on the first floor. They were protecting this uh, building. They organized this propaganda channel, radio channel called Tavria, if I'm not mistaken. We were able to see even the scripts of their radio programs. Uh, they were presenting this uh, in Russian, first of all, and telling the story of liberation of Kherson by Russians and all uh, this stuff. Uh, a lot of ruins because there were a lot of strikes before they left the city uh, in uh, early November. They exploded the, the television tower just in front of this building. Huge explosion. So the city was without any kind of connection, any kind of information for the last, during last week before the Ukrainian troops arrived. So people told us, and even this journalist, Natalia, told us that they knew nothing about Ukrainian advance to Kherson. For them, uh, they didn't... Uh, get any kind of announcement as we got from Surovikin announcement, they will be uh, uh, forced to take hard decisions. We remember all remember that, but they were out of information. There were no information at all. In the last days, they exploded this water system and the electricity. People had no telephones just to call somebody to, to get to know some news. And it was a really huge surprise for the major major part of the people living in Kherson that Ukrainians uh, are already there and they, they live in yeah. the city. We are living, you, our listeners, are living in the world of internet, virtual world, uh, Twitter, Uh, I don't know, uh, Facebook, WhatsApp, TikTok, whatever else, uh, podcasts maybe. Those people were living really in the world of just oral news when somebody on the street told you that they have seen Ukrainian soldiers in on that particular district and you say how come it's not possible and then you go to the to the center or you see on the streets we have seen all those videos that uh, we have published a lot of them on, on our Twitter, that people were really surrounding these Ukrainian cars. But it was really as if the news that you got is not the news from the Telegram channel, from Twitter or wherever. It's just someone told you, your neighbor, or I imagine a, a person just, you know, screams from uh, your neighbor, screams from another door or or whatever else, or knocks on your door and tells this this news. This is this is how it was happening. And uh, what Russians also did just before they left, they took everything with them. Even we were very much surprised when we entered Kherson to see trolleybus, but they were not Ukrainian trolleybuses. Oh, but it but was a bus, not trolleybus. Trolleybus, a bus. Bus coming from from what, from Poland or from Slovakia. We, with, I, 
I'm with, not sure. with, with foreign numbers. Foreign yes. numbers, and it was a, not Ukrainian one. And we were surprised, and we just had this question: Why? Why there is so so? Why? Why they they transported here? But this, the explanation is this: As people told us, the Russians when they left the city, they took everything: buses, and uh, and trolley buses, and uh, and uh, fire 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 machine. How how you call it for? Yeah. And all all kind of um, ambulances, ambulances as well. So they were really stealing, stealing everything. And that's why the uh, the day when the Ukrainian troops entered and volunteers came. So the first thing they organized, they organized all this stuff for the city because the city was simply empty. Yeah, and still the city is very resilient. And people who were talking to us, some of them really were, you see, that really very traumatized because this is a do- double trauma. First, you live for nine months under occupation with a very cruel regime, which uh, which establishes uh, torture houses. Unfortunately, we ha- we hadn't an opportunity to look at them, and maybe we will do that next time. The uh, torture chambers and. Uh, uh, as as we know now, about four five hundred, I think four hundred fifty something. I'm I'm very very sorry for not being exact in these numbers because they are very very sensitive numbers. Uh, between four and five hundred people were found dead in Kherson, and this is uh, these are the people tortured and killed uh, in Kherson in Kherson Oblast. These were Ukrainian activists. Uh, at the same time, uh, um, we met many people who are smiling, who are energetic, who are willing to fight, willing to to resist. Uh, but this double—I I didn't mention this, didn't finish this thought—the double trauma. So you you have this nine months of occupation, and then you have liberation, this euphoria, and then you have this constant shelling for already over one month. Which, which is really, you know, destroying, annihilating your city. So first you are in this term of um, occupation. As if one of my trail friends told me, as if you were living in a prison and then you were liberated. When we, you have been liberated, uh, they just started shooting at you and you need to hide from, from bullets, from shells, whatever. This is, this is how it looks like. But at the same time, the people here are, are very strong, uh, very pro-Ukrainian. And there was the story of resistance. There was the story of the partisans, far partisan fights. There was the story of, you know, um, hunting against the collaborators. We know that. And we've met several people who are telling us that they were in this underground. And this is not just underground, you know, um, when you when you just keep your Ukrainian flag, whatever this is, this was an underground which was very dangerous for the occupiers, for the Russian occupiers. I mean, many collaborators, including Mister uh, Strimausov, whom we mentioned in one of our previous podcasts about Kherson, were indeed killed by the Ukrainian resistance. And we even met this uh, woman with the surname Monro. Like Marilyn Monroe, just imagine a blonde woman in her forties, a very beautiful one, 
with a, a wonderful makeup, beautifully dressed, and looking like if somebody who is interested only in fashionable dresses, clothes, and makeups. And this particular woman was keeping silence during all our conversation with, because it was a group conversation. But later, one of our colleagues had a closer talk with her, and she told the story. She was in the resistance, and her task was just to get to know the Russians' positions and then to provide the exact positions, exact uh, uh, coordinates to Ukrainian army, what she was doing with a lot of success. She was beautiful when nobody suspected that such a person would be linked to any kind of resistance. But she was very efficient. And when the Ukrainians entered the city, and this information was provided by Ukrainian Ukrainian military who is still on the position, who is still still uh, walking there, that he also met this woman and she was able to, to tell them, Ukrainian forces, where Russians' explosives are. And at every case, the location was exact and accurate. So she knew all that and she was cheating Russians with her appearance Look a little bit old fashioned beauty, you know, like in like Marilyn Monroe, but but today the same image of a blonde woman doing that. And she was doing extremely dangerous things and trying to and and with a lot of success. So such yeah, people. Yeah, so so we have also stories that you, you can make films out of it and spy movies that will be very interesting. Maybe the last thing, also dramatic thing, is that uh, villages around Kherson, for example, on the on the highway from uh, Mykolaiv to Kherson, unfortunately, they have a oh, very, very hard, hard uh, situation right now. One of them is Posad Pokrovsky, quite a rich village before the big war, a village with a market. I assume that uh, with, uh, with gasoline stations, usually villages earn uh, money from that. Just completely destroyed. Completely destroyed. Very on a very rare occasion, you can see a a house which is intact, which is not which is not destroyed. So very terrible, very dramatic, uh, dramatic situation there. So this is our story about Kherson, and you can see that yeah, there are positive and negative sides of it. There are sides of resilience. There are sides of resistance. There are sides of uh human bravery but now unfortunately the city is very difficult the situation is very difficult uh, if you go out uh, to uh, to a shop you have a risk to be killed by russian artillery this is unfortunately the situation right now this was a podcast explaining ukraine my name is vladimir yermolenko i'm chief editor of ukraine world my co-host is Tetiana Harkova, who is um, responsible for international outreach at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. You can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Ukraine World. We devote majority of your assistance to uh, people affected by this war and to Ukrainian uh, defense, defenders, to Ukrainian resistance. Patreon.com slash Ukraine World. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.